you welcome to Monday's Richie Allen Show, the 22nd of May 2023. I'm Richie Allen, get in touch with me now via the app, the Richie Allen Show app, via the App Store or Google Play, or drop me a message through richieallen.co.uk. To be with you, good it is. Beautiful day here in Salford. Wonderful. Uncensored, unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host... Richie Allen. Yeah, in the second hour of the programme, Sean Walsh will join us for the first time. I'm looking forward to that. He's a really interesting writer and he's written some excellent pieces for the Conservative Woman, including an article on artificial intelligence and why maybe we needn't be too worried about it. So that's a nice bit of balance, isn't it, on the show. Before that, Tony Gosling joined us live from Lisbon last Thursday. He was covering Bilderberg. It's over. Tony will be with me this hour for a bit of a recap. What happened over the weekend? Tony Gosling will join us and tell us all. Monday's programme with Richie Allen, the BBG. Back in action. In action, I'm back. I don't feel too hot, though. And a nasty thing happened to me in the Lake District on Saturday, up around Grassmere. Um, I have a dental bridge, a ceramic bridge, a three-unit bridge, and it broke when I bit into my lunch. And I thought, well, that's not the end of the world because they can just give me a new bridge. But alas, no. One of the supporting teeth underneath the bridge snapped and I'm in for a nightmare trip to uh, several trips to the dentist. You can probably hear it in my voice. I look like Shane McGowan. If Shane McGowan had a baby with Joe Jordan, the former Manchester United forward, I suppose a bit like Richard Keel because I'm nearly seven foot tall. It's really shite, really. I can't smile. I'm not in any pain now, thankfully, but people can't look at me. And you might not be too happy to hear this. There won't be any live video streaming of the programme until it is sorted. And that's just the way it is, because while I'm not in the least bit vain, I'm not putting the cameras on while I look like this. That sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it isn't. So what a nasty thing. We had a beautiful day up there. Wonderful. Met some wonderful people. It was scorching hot. The dogs went into the lake. We went to the mortal man up in the hills, the pub where we get the grub. Bit into a little bit of bread. Snap. You could hear the, the, the snap was audible. It could be heard in, I don't know, in Kendall. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's really awful now. And they can't give me a new ceramic bridge, so I have two options. Both of them are very expensive. But I'm not going to bitch to you because, well, you have your own problems and you just simply don't give a damn, do you, about my orthodontic escapades. (laughs) Christ, I'm laughing now, but I can hear the lisp in my own voice now. Anyway, I don't care about having a lisp. You can't be perfect all of the time. Today is Monday, May the 22nd. It is six years since the arena bombing. At Manchester Arena, which has since been renamed the AO Arena. It's also been 10 years since the murder of Lee Rigby. That's interesting, isn't it? 
That's a coincidence, maybe, maybe it isn't. Now, as usual, my inbox, just like last year, was festooned this morning with emails from people reminding me that the arena bombing never happened. No proof offered to me, though. Just allegations. 22 people died that night. An explosion of some sort did take place at the arena. People did die. I know this. How did they die? I don't know. The Salman Abedi as the bomber story has a lot of holes in it. I know that. Uh, But one of the chaps who did die, sadly, was a young man called Philip Tron. Now, Philip's dad and his stepmom were at the arena today for a memorial and they spoke to GB News. This is uh, Philip Tron, who died on the night seven years ago. Is it uh, six years ago? Excuse me, six years. Uh, His stepmom and dad went to the arena and, as I said, GB News caught up with them. The night it happened, well, the day it happened, obviously, I was in Manchester with him in... It wasn't often I got a chance to do that. I mean, my scale friend, the two girls were there, but I spent a lot of time with us because they were shopping and trying things on and stuff. And we'd stand behind the chair and have a big carry-on with us and say daft things. And I just classed it as May Day. That was May Day with him, and it was lovely. It was lovely, you know. And it was just to think that he'd come in here and he never come back out. That was it. He'll never be forgotten, you know. Um, he's always in my hearts. Anything we do, everywhere we go, there's always some thought about him. Or mm-hmm. Phil was here with this, or we did that, or what have you. Um, we were talking a minute ago about, the, obviously it was the 22nd of May, it was 22 victims. You were telling me that the number 22 continues to crop up in your life. Oh, Tell me about very, that. Very much so. Everywhere you go, you know, go to the restaurant. This table, all right, table 22. Got to go upstairs to a toilet. 22 steps, come across the moors to see the highest point, one, two, two, one feet. (laughs) And do you feel like that brings you closer to Philip almost? Um, (laughs) I don't know, it's it's hard to say. Um, I don't think we need anything to bring him closer, you know. He'll Uh, always be there, there. little cheeky chappy. Yeah, God love them. He'll always be there, said Dad. Uh, those are not actors, by the way. Their son went to Manchester Arena to watch a gig and their son never came home. Right. What happened there, I don't know, but an explosion of some sort did take place, in my opinion. A lot of this around today because of the, um, because of the anniversary. Uh, come here and I tell you, did you hear the Irish suddenly turned into a nation of far-right racist bastards? Did you hear that? Well, they have. And they've got the establishment fretting over what to do with them. What will we do with the Irish racist bastards? Now, the Justice Minister, Simon Harris, said the hijacking, that's a quote, of the Irish tricolour, the tricolour by anti-migrant protesters, was, quote, abhorrent, and that the Gardaí are facing a difficult environment. How do we deal with the far-right thugs? Apparently there were 125 anti-migrant protests this year in Dublin alone. And Harris, this justice minister, said the Gordy were being provoked with cameras in their faces. Well, thank God for the cameras, I say. Because then they're less likely to misbehave, aren't they? The Gordy And maybe other people in attendance as well. So Harris said that the government is looking at harsher sentences 
for assaults on frontline members of the force, right? And he did that mealy-mouthed thing about people's right to peaceful protest and all of that old bollocks. But he said there is a clear line between protest and intimidation. He said, um, Santry in Dublin yesterday, I didn't know anything about this because I was at the dentist in Stretford yesterday afternoon, an emergency dentist in Stretford. So I was in the baking heat. Um, But apparently Santry in Dublin saw protests where asylum seekers were blocked from their accommodation. I wouldn't recommend that, to be honest. I totally get why the Irish people are apoplectic and enraged by the treatment they are receiving from their government and enraged at dozens, if not hundreds, of people being dumped in the community which doesn't have the resources. I get all of that. I am on the side of those people. They are righteous in their protest. But don't be stopping people going about their business. That That's what I would say, right? I don't think you do yourselves any favours, you know. Anywho. So the organisers, so while this is going on, the organisers of the blockade in Inch, in, in County Clare, you know, Inch McGowna House, that's been going on for a couple of weeks. They have lifted their blockade of that centre, while at the same time saying that their protest will continue. They lifted the blockade outside the McGowna House Hotel yesterday, and that was in line with the Irish Immigration Minister... Uh, and his request, they do that, but they said they would continue to protest. So the media in Ireland is desperate to know what's going on. Where are all these far-right people coming from? So Morning Ireland, which goes out on the national broadcaster, RTE, interviewed Kieran O'Connor, who is he's an Irish guy who works for a think tank based in London known as the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. What's going on with the far-right in Ireland then, Kieran? Tell us, pal, will you? Yeah, what you're seeing is that internationally the anti-migrant sentiments these situations are being exploited by and supported by explicitly anti-immigration figures or groups who are primarily motivated uh, by creating tension or division who only want to further their own agenda and use these situations for their own agenda they use them essentially as a, as a rallying call to first support the actions on the ground then the kind of wider aim being that they they use this kind of content, these kinds of incidents as part of a wider anti-immigrant camp- campaign. And this isn't just isolated in relation to, to Claire in the last six, seven months in the kind of anti-migrant uh, surge we've seen in the country. Many incidents uh, and many, many... It's very unfair to characterise these people as anti-migrant, isn't it? Particularly when many of these people are well-spoken middle-class men and women. Now, I'm a working-class boy, so don't think for a minute... I'm looking down on working class lads, but I'm a working class lad. I can be a bit rough and ready, and sometimes I can be a bit misunderstood. But many of these people are from middle income families. They are terribly polite, to use that well-worn oxymoron, and they make it clear they're not anti-the migrants. They make it clear that they are concerned about the collapse of services that are so vital for them in their communities because of the influx of so many people with very little provisions. So they're not anti-migrants. It's wrong, this, you see. It's very wrong. And the idiotic presenter, whose name I can't remember, she's as useless as, I don't know, a, a screen door on a submarine. 
to use that well-worn cliche, um, she should stop him and say, well, you know, a lot of these people, they come across as being pretty reasonable, you know. The moments from this have been capitalised upon, have been shared and amplified by uh, international uh, far-right figures, groups, communities. Protesters in Inch, as we know, were anxious to stress that they were concerned about a lack of information and a lack of services. But I suppose that didn't prevent the sort of people who a few days earlier were applauding the burning of tents in Dublin city centre. It didn't see what she did there. So she kind of made reference to the fact that some of them were protesting the lack of services, but then she moved on. Let's not talk about that. And let's say, but that didn't stop people applauding the burning of a man's sleeping bag a couple of weeks ago. What what has that got to do with those who are asking questions about the sanity of dropping people into a community that is overstretched already? Prevent those people from rallying to the cause of the residents in Inch. No, exactly. And what you're seeing domestically is that this has kind of been, been seen as the next uh, the next win or the next moment to to celebrate and support. And in some this guy's an absolute muppet. She asks him an interesting question, though. Actually, let me. It's a strange thing going on here. I don't know what it is. It's happened before. Let me just make an adjustment, and we should be all right. Yeah, yeah. I've got a very temperamental uh, broadcast console here. It's acting temperamentally on me. Hang on. One, two, yeah, we'll do that, and we're back in the room. She asks him a question then. Have a listen to this. This is interesting. How strong are the bonds between elements of the far right in Ireland and people with similar views in other countries? That's amazing. How strong are the bonds between these far right people in Ireland and people in other countries with similar views? Is there an international network of far right people? Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's an ongoing question. Uh, kind of requires ongoing analysis. What you do see is constant and regular sharing and promoting of content or kind of calls to action and similar kinds of sentiments um, on questions of, of organisation. Um, that's that's one that's kind of it's, it's harder to to put a pin on. But we have seen interest from let's say British far right uh, right wing extremists in the anti-migrant search here in the last six seven months uh, a couple of, of of UK figures traveled to Ireland to to produce what they would call a documentary which was essentially anti-migrant propaganda and disinformation yeah there's a lot of far right look there are, there isn't a far right in Ireland I don't think I think we can leave that alone we can leave that one alone you're listening to the Richie Allen show 14 minutes past the hour this Monday the twenty uh, second of May, twenty twenty two. Three, three, three. Richie, yeah, it must be the uh, codeine. It must be the. It must be what are they? These um, these painkillers. It must be the opioids. It can't be anything else. So it can't be. Okay, keep those messages coming in to me, please. Use the app, richieallen.co.uk. Use the app for the Richie Allen Show. Use uh, the website, richieallen.co.uk, by way of leaving me a message. I look forward to hearing from you today. What are we going to talk about now? We're going to talk about uh, the planet warming, which is nonsense. We're all going to die, right, if the planet doesn't stop warming. But there's a story every day on the news now. They're ramping this up constantly. And protesters continue to wind up drivers in London, you know, walking slowly on the roads and all of that. And on the Jeremy Vine Channel 5 show this morning, they discussed how best to communicate this message, this dire news to children. Journalist Jonathan Liss 
Um, that's his name, LIS. Jonathan List, journalist. He's bought it hook, line and sinker. He believes it, so does Jonathan. The thing that we have to, you know, start on the basis that climate change is a bad thing and that sort of having orange trees in Britain is not uh, a price worth paying for sort of millions of people being displaced from their homes uh, around the world, um, having major cities underwater, which is not just... Uh, which is not just... Well, this is a, a, a gl the consensus... Um, through from scientists is that this is real it's happening um the bbc uh, even says that there's no argument now there's no there's no need for balance there's no need to sort of put a climate change denier on the same panel as a scientist who accepts this because the but science is irrefutable yeah. but we know that sea levels are rising we know um that we have a certain uh, a, sort of the level of temperature that we can get to before we reach a tipping point. I think this is where we need to be talking about because pupils have to be taught about climate change and I think they have to be taught about it as fact, not supposition. Teach them about it as fact, not supposition. It's really happening, says this guy Jonathan Liss. Then Jeremy Vine turns it over to Angela Epstein, who was also on the panel, or was on the panel today. If we assume it's fact, Angela, that the, the temperatures are getting hotter and that's bad, there's no way of saying to young people, uh, but don't worry, you'll probably be fine. You can't, not, you can't do that, can you? No, but it's not a question of that. It's a question of having, of being circumspect about it, explaining why we need to have cleaner, greener energy and all the other things that we know are good for the planet. And that is quite separate by saying, you know, Manchester's going to become Atlantis within 20 years if we don't do something about it. I mean, we have had extreme um, examples of weather through the centuries. And now, every time that happens, we attribute it to climate change. I am not saying that the world isn't getting warmer. I am not a climate scientist, you know, breaking news. What I am saying is that if we're going to talk about it, we don't talk about it in alarmist terms. And also, we talk about the fact that other things happen in, in tandem with that. Technology, as we can see, is evolving at a breakneck speed. So things that might be happening as a consequence of climate change may be able to be managed through technology as well. It is not necessarily kind of Armageddon. It's not necessarily Armageddon, says Angela Epstein. We have technologies that might be able to offset much of this warming. What does Jonathan Liss say? Of course, there, there might be tech, technology and technological in, innovation, but it's not going to be enough to counter climate change. So where I would focus this conversation is teaching children about it, saying that this is alarming because it is alarming. And we, you know, obviously there's no one saying that the world is going to be underwater in 20 years, but there are major things. No, I didn't say that the world is going to be underwater in 20 years. I say that, you know, in the future, there are going to be rising temperatures which are it's, going to right. threaten low-lying places. It, it... Right, threaten low-lying places. No evidence of this whatsoever, no evidence at all. The thing that we have to, you know, start on the basis that climate change is a bad thing. Uh... Right, let's leave that there, right? Let's leave it there, because time is pressing. It's 18 and a half minutes past the hour. Tony Gosling will be joining me live in a few minutes' time. A little bit later on, we'll be joined by a really, really interesting gentleman who's writing some terrific articles for The Conservative Woman. His name is Sean Walsh. Don't miss him. Um, but what are we going to do between now and then? I've got three stories. I've only got time for two. What have we got? What have we got? This is interesting. You've probably been following this. Let me... Um, Right, I'm having a serious sound issue here. Let me just take a tune and I'll be right back with you in a moment, okay?
Yeah, George Harrison and What Is Life on the Richie Allen Show. 22 and a half minutes past the hour. I wouldn't be a Monday if something didn't um, come along to try you and test your patience, would it? Wouldn't be a Monday. But it is a Monday. Uh, thank you for your messages thus far. I really appreciate them. Mike, how are you doing? Mike, thank you, Mike. He references BBC Verify which has gone live. I did talk about this last week. This is the BBC's new 60-strong team of journalists, which is going to scour the world of news and determine for me and for you what is true and what isn't true, and we should take their word for it. BBC verified. The BBC has anointed itself, basically, as the arbiter of what is true and what isn't true. Imagine the cheek of it. Imagine the balls of the BBC, the lies that the BBC allowed be spread across its many platforms in the last three years alone. Imagine it. The BBC which continues to cover up the damage done by the Covid jabs which were rushed into existence in a matter of months. And the BBC has said, we've got a new thing called BBC Verify. This is where we tell you why you can trust us and why you should believe us will take you behind the stories and we'll show you how we came to conclude, to arrive at the conclusions we have based on any given story. The BBC can fuck off, is what the BBC can do. The BBC, who back in 2001 announced that Building 7 had collapsed into its own footprint in a World Trade Centre Plaza, while the building was standing behind the Dizzy Bint in the live shot. Do you remember? And Dizzy Bint is being kind. Dizzy Bint. Yes. Yeah, Building 7 has collapsed. Standing behind you there, love. We can see it there. You know? This is Monday's programme. A little bit later on, Sean Walsh talking about AI. Artificial intelligence. He's written for the conservative woman on the subject. I'm looking forward to hearing from him. Tony Gosling's end. Great writer, great broadcaster, attended the Bilderberg conference. He didn't attend himself, Tony. He didn't have an invitation. He wasn't sitting there hobnobbing it with uh, the bad and the even badder and Henry Kissinger. But he did go there. He's been going there for many years. He's a great pal and a leading authority on all things Bilderberg. Good evening, Tony. Good evening, Richie. Uh, it's quite f- really I always encourage people to come to these conferences, particularly since you kind of bump into, uh, as I did, uh, Mark Carney in the street. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, this is this is the place where these people kind of hang out and they they're actually very good at sort of getting out of the conference. And, and they, for example, on Saturday, um, they decided they were going to go for dinner somewhere um, nearby at, at our museum. And so you, you know there is very much an opportunity to actually speak to these people to put questions to them uh you know they don't really want to answer as soon as they realize that you're either filming them or recording them in some way uh but i mean you're up close and personal to some of the most powerful people in the western world and particularly the finance the people who are financing the future that's really what we're talking about you did a great job of explaining what it is when we spoke on thursday you, after all of these years, you still retain a real sense of indig- indignation, don't you, at the cheek of these people to go about doing what it is they do, these unelected people treating the rest of us like we're pawns on a chessboard effectively, Tony? 
Well, it's partly because there's so many elected people in there as well. I mean, yeah. I think this year uh, we're talking about 15 elected politicians from the European countries plus another six from the Europe, the unelected EU Commission. Uh, so, so that's what I find so irritating about it is that you've got all these elected people basically getting their marching orders uh, from the banksters. And if you look at the you know, look around the world and you see what's coming through as policy these days, then it's obvious. I mean, I think for me, the one of the most the one of the most um, interesting examples is this guy David Lammy who's been here this weekend he was also at last year's Bilderberg he he's one of those individuals that uh, he's a Labour MP and he he seems to want to bend over backwards to do everything he can to just be the kind of person that the rich and powerful want uh, in order to get ahead in politics and so he's he's a sort of Macbeth style ambitious maniac effectively that he will he will do almost anything in order to be uh, and he he's, he's so he's he's just a, a willing lackey of this lot and I think every time every time now I see uh, David Lammy particularly after the last year's Bilderberg I just see somebody who is a sort of archetypal toady politician who, who's got no principles no real beliefs but he just wants to be, shapeshift into which, whichever personality the elite and powerful puppeteers want yeah he's got a, a radio show on LBC which is which is insane um, what 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 are there specific examples in recent, very recent years of things that Lamy is supporting or doing that um, would lead you to conclude that he's such a lackey for the for the builder? Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, the main one is Ukraine. Secondly, he's absolutely in, uh, up for all the uh, jabs. He's been completely one hundred percent behind all that. He's he's. Um, uh, completely into the whole LBGT education of ki of young kids, uh, which has left Britain in the insane position of now having 20% of our young people aren't quite sure what sex they are. Yeah. I mean, you don't get any of that in Portugal, really. I think it's fair to say. You talk, you look at the Portuguese youngsters, they look really well adjusted. They look happy. You know, they look uh, like they can express themselves without any kind of fear of, of anything. In fact, we were in... Uh, a, um, a monastery going around a monastery today and some of the kids that were on a tour from the local schools uh, then put on a play you know in front of it and they looked so happy they just looked like they could basically do whatever they want and there was no pressure on them to take on any bizarre weird beliefs and and it's a that sort of place it's a, the portuguese people are just gentle soft uh, almost like you know i suppose the brits used to be many years ago maybe not in the east end of london but you know how 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 uh, their their moral attitude to everybody else is always a presumption of innocence and a presumption of friendship whereas we've been slowly groomed over the last 40 or 50 years in britain to be suspicious of people you know so the idea is that human nature is you know is dark and potentially people are going to be predatory here it's not like that at all it's obviously it's a mediterranean catholic country uh and it's so different to the uk uh that, you know it's really good i think to you know to to look uh, to take these trips away, just to realise uh, how dark, actually, you know, particularly with the kids' education, Britain's becoming, Richie. Yeah, we, we, you know, we could we could do a whole show on that. We might do a whole show on it. Can I just bring well, this up? Well, let me just right? say one thing about Lammy first, because uh, I don't think this had happened on Thursday when I spoke to you, and stop me if it had, but we had an amazing incident with him when he turned up, I think it was on Friday. Uh, David Lammy, uh, they wouldn't let him in. 
they they declined to to admit him, did they? Go on. They wouldn't let him in. Why? I mean, we had a we had a very similar thing actually in Dresden. Well, I think it was Dresden with Ed Balls, uh, uh, and it's horribly embarrassing when you get someone who thinks they're important. You're looking at me, thinking you're not important enough, mate. You know, <laughs> and uh, and so they wouldn't. No, no, no. He had to get out the car. In fact, he um, I think he came in a cab. Yeah, he came in a cab, and uh, he was stood around, and everyone was click 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 taking pictures of him, and this, in the outer level of security just wouldn't let him through. And so rather than just wait, as most of them do for a couple of minutes for someone to come out and clear him and get in he he then he, he ran off with his bag and hid behind a, a, a bush and uh, he didn't want to be photographed so of course uh, you know various people are going off behind the bush taking pictures of him behind the bush and, and he was trying to hide further behind the bush and it was just you know a ridiculous kind of farcical multi python style situation <laughs> so the, uh, by which point Lovely. by which point the uh, Bilderberg security people uh, were there saying you know where is he you know <laughs> Lammy's arrived they'd had, and we they'd had the sure message yeah. where's yeah. he gone and they were asking the photographers well do you know where he's gone you know like and so yeah yeah yes uh, well, uh italian uh belgian guy giorgio uh, took him out took, took the security said come over here come over here and he's just in there behind that bush hiding yeah they are ridiculous people <laughs> uh, the guardian bit, so that's lammy for you you know Lamy he's not only not only is he a lackey but he's 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 also a coward in fact he doesn't want to be photographed so of course, those pictures are hopefully are going to be all over the place. There's been only a few mainstream press articles in the UK. The ones I've seen, Guardian, Charlie Skelton's done an excellent job in just ripping them to shreds, as they should be, of course, uh, lampooning the Bilderbergers and Henry Kissinger particularly. Uh, the Mail did a reasonable piece, but virtually nothing else, Richie. You get nothing else. I did read an interesting article in The Guardian today. British arms exports doubled last year to a record £8.5 billion. Now, Bilderberg happened this weekend, you were there. This morning, the Biden administration has pushed F-16s for Ukraine. The Russian ambassador to the United States has laughed at that and said there aren't any Ukrainian pilots to fly them. There There isn't the infrastructure in Ukraine for these things to take off in any case. But I wonder that... That announcement from the Biden administration, is that something that likely came out of Bilderberg over the weekend? Let's push hard for more arms Uh, for Ukraine. Well, it's possible. I mean, there's been pressure for a long time through all these organisations, including the G7, to do this kind of thing. And we did have the Ukrainian foreign minister in here with these NATO chiefs. Uh, I mean, I think Britain has sort of found its mojo now, hasn't it, uh, with the Ukraine war? Hey, look, we've doubled our arms sales. We've found an export market that we can actually make some money at because there's nothing else. I mean, nothing. Is there is you, one thing is Britain producing that uh, they can export? No, but they can export weapons and they can export death and war. Yeah. Uh, we can. Uh, so, I mean, whether that's a decision which was actually made in here, I doubt it because – uh, although, of course, it is, an, it is a very good place for prime ministers um, to make off-the-record deals with a specific individual. I mean, we have three prime ministers here. We had the Dutch, uh, the Danish, and another one. I can't remember which now in, in Europe. And then there was a deputy prime minister of Canada. There's a whole load of politicians. And that's what is really makes, you know, makes the entire thing stink. Charlie said he's quite right in his article. It's like a council of war. So the idea is uh, there's a horrible atmosphere, I think, for many of the participants when they're turning up, particularly the arty types, that they're being brought into sort of uh, 
you know, sugarcoat what is effectively a kind of press gang situation where they're trying to get various politicians to get their policy behind this insane war in, in, in Ukraine, which Ukraine can never win. The more they keep talking about them winning, the more Ukrainians are dying. Over the weekend, I bet that was, wasn't was uh, even mentioned inside the Bilderberg meeting, was the fall of Bakhmut, finally, um, with a, a Russian private military company actually taking on the uh, state uh, army of Ukraine and winning. I think that's probably the first time in history that's happened, uh, but that's not being talked about in there. So, uh, but if, I think it, it, important for me, I've been doing this for a few years, is, I mean, okay, so it's about Ukraine. A lot of what's going on in there is about trying to get all these politicians behind the war in Ukraine. And many of them, are, I mean, the Portuguese, for example, are not enthusiastic behind it. I mean, I was chatting to some police here, actually, uh, the other day and saying, well, would you, are you, would you like to sign up to fight the Russians? And there were three of them all at once. No, 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 no. Yeah. So, of course, nobody wants this. Uh, and yet they're trying to shoehorn everybody into it. But it's, I think, part of a much bigger – Bilderberg is part of a much bigger movement, which is this accelerationist movement towards – creating crises that you then make worse so in covid we had obviously and the vaccine so-called vaccines the jabs making things worse by actually making probably more people sick than uh, than covid did and, in, and increasing these uh, these long-term health effects uh, through autoimmune disease people getting in later life and dying prematurely because they've had these mrna uh, or the um, adenovirus you know the astrazeneca jabs the blood clots and you know all sorts of horrific stuff like that people being conned into it through propaganda so you know there's that there's the migrant crisis the economic crisis. i mean there's all these crises I'm, I, I can't quite believe that you've got a for example you've got the british government and the us government now quite straight face saying oh we're going to have to increase interest rates to keep inflation down well interest rates don't keep inflation no, down they, they raise they, inflation they raise, yeah because you know, so what we've got is this acceleration. That's what accelerationism is, is you come up with and you, you spin for the public uh, a whole bunch of solutions to various different problems, which are actually going to exacerbate the problems rather than make them any better. And, and that, I think, is, I mean, of course, the mainstream press is absolutely culpable in all that. So, you know, we, you, it's why it's so important shows like yours, uh, Richie, uh, and mine, I suppose, where we're where we're plugging away with a, with an element of something that that has the ring of truth about it. So things aren't quite right, are they? And this is why. And 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 Bilderberg, you know, with all the the the, the bankers particularly, but all the oil company. I mean, I I've, I realised there's another oil company in there I didn't even realise because one of the participants is a. a director of Chevron, uh, and it's not written on the list. So you have to kind of go through the list and. And um, look up each name on the internet to find out what their other directorships are that they're not talking about. There, one of them that we had, I think, altogether five directors of world's major oil companies sitting in there with all these politicians. And of course, they're the people who are driving the, the policy now. I mean, the the seventy odd billion annual profits from oil. Uh, this is these are the these are the most powerful rich people in the world, and the politicians have got nothing to say, Richie, about these. Um, you know, yeah, they are. And they are yeah, let me let me come in. And those who are unfamiliar with Bilderberg should take note that they never, ever, ever released the minutes of these meetings. Tony Gosling is our guest. I want to get get through two or three more things before 
at sure. the top of the hour, mate. But on the Ukraine, on the situation in Ukraine, it it looks to me like what is desired there is that this gets mired and it goes on for ages. Because the longer this goes on, the more it can be used to justify anything, really, any... Um, any secondary or tertiary crisis, you know, well, we have another crisis, but it's because of the situation in Ukraine. Do you see that, that this, this Ukraine, this is not going to end anytime soon and we could be looking at, at years just before we talk about one or two other things? Yes, I think you're, you're right. And Mark Sloboda came on our programme. He's a, um, he, well, right when it all started, he's teaching, he's an American ex uh, nuclear uh, American Army nuclear engineer of some sort. I think he was a he was an army officer that was in charge of something to do with the uh, nuclear launch sites, and he's now teaching at Moscow State University. He was absolutely adamant to right at the start. No, this is never going to finish because the Russians have realised that actually a lot of these peripheral wars that we've had over the last 30, 40 years have really been uh, tinkering around the edges, and that really what the Americans, the people, the Americans really want to take on are the Russians. And now the Russians have engaged with the Yanks via Ukraine um, and the Brits, obviously, cheerleading on in a sort of pathetic little way. Um, the, the, this, this, is, this, is, this is the, is it going to be an end, uh, end game? This is either one or the other is going to go. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, that um, means really you're, not, you're either going to have to get a US president who is going to stop it, which is highly unlikely, or else, you know, that one side or the other is going to win through, uh, you know, an exchange. But the thing is, the Americans know that they can pour more and more and more into this because they've got all of Europe, you know, hundreds of millions of people in Europe as a kind of buffer between them and the Russians. So they've somehow managed uh, to convince the Europeans through the EU, mainly and Ursula von der Leyen, who again was groomed at Bilderberg and you know put in place by Kissinger via Bilderberg. In fact, she was sitting at the head table with Henry Kissinger back in Dresden in 2016, I remember. And uh, so she's she's really just the person that gets the orders from the states to 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 get Europe to swivel whichever way the Yankees want. Tell me this, the BBC, your old parish, has launched a 60-strong team of journalists to work on something called BBC Verify, where we, we are told, and I wanted to ask you this, we are told that the BBC will take you behind the scenes to show you why it should be the most trusted source of news, why when it tells you something, you can take it to the bank. Let me ask you this. Is that in some way related, this launch of BBC Verify, to the online safety bill going through the House of Lords at the moment? Because I think it just might be. What do you think? I think it's probably more related to the fact that the BBC's ratings are plummeting and that people don't trust it anymore. So someone at the board is saying, well, people don't trust us. Well, we need to tell people why they must trust us. Now, that isn't going to work, but it makes the um, senior producers and the, uh, the controllers of the various channels feel better about the lies that they, that they, you know, they've been telling themselves about how good they are. I mean, that's the. I mean, I don't know if you saw the figures at the, the end of the uh, beginning of last week uh, for talk TV and talk radio, 
very, very good figures. The BBC's Today programmes lost a massive, massive yeah, amount in the last year of their yeah. audience. Hundreds of thousands of listeners have just fled uh, because it's badly produced. It's propaganda. And people don't know have a kind of sixth sense about when stuff's nonsense and rubbish. And they might be convinced to keep watching it for a while. But after a while, they just switch off and listen to something else. In this case, it's Rupert Murdoch's talk, talk TV, talk radio. Well, that's the problem, isn't yeah, it, people- T? That's the problem, though, isn't it? I mean, so we understand why they abandon the BBC Radio 4 Today programme. We understand why they get fed up of um, Naga Munchetti, of course, because it is propagandistic bollocks, not to put too fine a point on it. But then they end up going to echo chambers like Talk TV and GB News, and that's all they are as echo chambers, right? Well, no, they're a bit more than that. I think the, the fact that uh, Talk TV has a very open, uh, I mean, pretty much anybody can just pick up a phone and get on there and talk. Uh, so it's, I'm not really so much not concerned me. about the, the presenters, um, but, you know, they, it seems to be pretty, well, I, I seem, seem to be able to manage to get on there fairly, fairly easily. And that's because they've been trying to build up an audience and they have built up an audience. It may be uh, now they've got these figures through, they start restricting who can come on and they start, you know, because obviously they keep logs of people, everyone that phones in. And so if you phone in another time, they've got a, maybe a black mark next to your name. Well, you know, obviously the BBC, <laughs> I'm, I think almost certainly have been doing that for a long time. Um, but then maybe it's just a form of self-censorship. So I just, I just think the decision at the Beeb to spend so much time on so-called verifying that they're telling the truth when they're lying is just a symptomatic of their, well, I mean, it's a sort of psychopathic insanity, really, that, that they think that they can tell everyone else what to think and and they don't have any kind of checks and balances on, on their own. You know, they don't allow criticism of themselves and these are the sort of sycophantic people. Imagine, you know, that Orwell talked about yeah. in much of his literature who just simply want to pat themselves and pat each other on the back. I mean, we know that knew them as the media lovies, the ones that when you do a programme will come over and say, oh, it's such a great programme, you know, look, just... F off, will you? You know, yeah. uh, that's not what I want to hear. Uh, what I want to hear is criticism, you know, something that that didn't work, you know, whatever, that's fine. Let's talk that through. Uh, but I think this is this is a, th- what's going on in many people's heads is their inability to be self-critical. And that is actually translated into uh, a, an entire kind of worldview at the BBC with these kind of cowards and control freaks running it. And it's and that's why every every week when I do my show, I say, thanks for turning off the psycho in the corner because that's what I see the radio and the television as now. I, I really feel, I listen to it and I think this is a psychopathic nonsense that's coming out of this thing uh, and uh, it's poison. You know, it's like, I mean, the, the thing is the broadcast media particularly, and, and includes the, um, uh, the, the, the newspapers is really the nervous system of humanity. So this is how humanity kind of talks to itself and you know makes things move and whatever. Uh, and what what the mainstream press now is it is you know it's, whether it's BBC or whether it's private equity controlled and run is is poison. It's like sarin nerve gas, you know, it's going through the nerves. You know, that's stuff that the, that the BBC said was happening in Syria, which wasn't, you know. And uh, and that's the, that's the problem is you've got, <clears throat> you've got a poison going through that system, uh, which the people who are running it just don't dare acknowledge. It's a bit like, you know, they don't dare talk, mention Diana down at Highgrove, you know, around around King Charles, because you say the word and that's it, you're being instantly sacked. You're gone. And by the way, yeah. there have been quite a few deaths of 
of employees at Highgrove over the last four, five or six, no, and 10 that's, years or so. People that's falling another, down wells and things like that. That's another story for another day. Before we talk about it Jimmy is. Savile, I, I, funny you mentioned getting on to um, other programmes. I was out jogging tea, about, running I should say, about six or eight weeks ago. And um, funny about this ringing up. And completely subconsciously, and I mean this, I, I was running and Nicky Campbell was on air and he was talking about capital. Uh. Well, he was talking about capital punishment because Lee Anderson, the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party, was talking a load of tosh about capital punishment. So without even thinking about it, to my shame, I texted in, you know, that um, I spent some time, uh, quite a bit of time in my youth, writing to condemned men in American prisons. And, um, you know, blah, 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 the conditions and one thing and another. Very quick text anyway. They came back to me within minutes to ask me to go on the air. And I thought, because I just said Rick, right? Blah, 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 writing to death row prisoners, Rick. And they came back to me. And I thought about going on and then just calling Campbell out for his, you know, behaviour over COVID. And then I that thought would have been fun. it would have been fun, but then I thought that's a bit cheap, that and it's the sort of thing that we would criticize them for doing, you know, um, that kind of gotcha nonsense. So I thought, no. So when they said to me, because they rang me and said, Will you come on? I said, I was about to, and I thought, no, I won't. I, I'll, I'll, I'll have another opportunity in the future, and I, I'll do it more often. Well, it's good that they called you. I mean, it shows you they're desperate for, for, for callers, for isn't new it? Maybe people. I should yeah. try as well. Yeah, do that to you. Now, come here, Jimmy Savile, holy... The two things before we say Jimmy Savile. What do you make <laughs> of the news that a reservoir... Is it in Portugal, where you've just come from, or is it in Germany? It's in Germany, is it? Um, they're, they're going to troll a reservoir for the remains of Madeleine McCann... Why won't the police give up on Madeleine McCann, Tony, quickly before we talk Savile? Well, I, I think it's right that the police should, you know, the, the uh, Portuguese, isn't it, police that, sh that should keep going on yeah. that. Because I can remember at the time reading about, I think it was an article in The Guardian, the Casa Pia paedophile ring, it, which was uh, a scandal that had been going on in the years before uh, the, the disappearance. Um, and it, ha it hadn't come to any proper conclusion. It was a cover-up, very much like our VIP default cover-up. And, you know, so, so for me, that's where the Portuguese police should, should have been focusing. And exactly like Savile, they never did. You know, the, 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 the fact is that the police, as soon as they start getting very close to criminals at the very top of society, they just get either scared off, they'll get warned off, or they will get ordered off. So... That's the way it works, and and I think that that's why the only the only kind of inkling we ever get that these sorts of things are going on, you know, with with senior politicians, judges, etc., being caught up in these paedophile rings, or else just being paedophiles themselves. I mean, sometimes it's entrapment, sometimes it's just a, a proclivity for that sort of disgusting behaviour, uh, and and so I, I, you know, that's that's I think that's why the, the Portuguese police shouldn't give up. You know, in a similar way that the, uh, the the police shouldn't give up on any of these kind of any unsolved you know, murder cases, serious criminal cases, and and particularly when it comes to investigating the rich and powerful. 
Good stuff. T. Tony Gosling is our guest. Thisweek.org.uk. Terrific website. Brilliant radio programme every Friday at five o'clock out of Bristol. You'll hear Martin on there. You'll hear excellent guests and stuff. Come here and I tell you. Let's do... What's going on with Jimmy Savile then? You've... Um, I didn't see this right, at all, yeah. but you uncovered this. Um, he could have been caught well, many times. Uh, okay, so we all know about the um, police prosecutions uh, of Savile in the 1990s, which were quashed by Starmer. Now, uh, Boris Johnson dared to mention this a couple of years ago in, in the Houses of Parliament, didn't he? And then he was uh, he, the, the press turned on him um, for that. That's a terrible thing to do because, of course, the establishment has decided that Keir Starmer is going to be the next Prime Minister. So we can't allow the truth about how he is... Uh, whether it's prosecuted an innocent Julian Assange or else let... I mean, this is his real big Achilles heel that he let off uh, twice. He quashed prosecutions by Surrey Police in the 1990s of Jimmy Savile when he was Director of Public Prosecutions. You know, this this way of corrupting public prosecutors, which, which um, Keir Starmer was, is the Mafia's chosen method to control the country. So they did exactly the same uh, over in um, Ukraine, didn't they, uh, when, with Hunter Biden, when uh, the Ukrainian prosecutor wanted to pursue uh, criminal charges against him. And then Joe Biden turns up and says, oh, well, if you want this, uh, this uh, loan, an IMF loan, I think it was, if you want this loan, uh, then you're going to have to just change the prosecutor because we've decided we don't like this guy. And so within a few hours, the prosecutor had been sacked in Ukraine. So th- this this position that Starmer had is absolutely key to whether or not you have a rule of law in your country. And clearly under Starmer, and uh, with particularly with the Savile case and the uh, Assange cases, we didn't have a rule of law under Starmer, so he was—he should have been, you know. It's easy to say this, but he sh- the guy should have been lynched, not not lynched, but put in jail for that, or tried for corruption, perverting the course of justice. I think it's called, which is up to life in prison. So Starmer should not be standing to be the next prime minister. He should be in jail. Uh, so th- this new information that I got. Um, a couple of weeks ago is from a journalistic colleague colleague up in Coventry, lovely guy as well, Chris Hewitt. Uh, He's been a journalist for around about 50 years now and he's still doing a bit of freelance work. He does a lot on technology, um, computing and this sort of thing, latest developments and he's very good on computer security, that kind of stuff. But he's, he's, um, when he was working on the Coventry Telegraph back in the 1970s, he, he was chatting to the vice squad at West Midlands who categorically told him well Savile you know every time we've we've arrested him that wasn't just the West Midlands police that was forces all over the country this is in 1978 Savile had already been arrested six, uh, six times or more and then released and the charges dropped under the orders of MI5 special branch so his conclusion, Chris's conclusion, quite reasonably, was uh, that he was some sort of MI5 informant that was working at the BBC and wherever else. But he was there to keep a, keep a close eye on everybody and feed information back to um, the, the security services. But that certainly, you know, doesn't give him the excuse to go around. And of course, nothing was done about it. So you would have thought, you know, if in any kind of normal world, the security services would have had a word with Savile and said, "Look, you've been arrested for this, and we can help." You know, we've let you know help get you off, 
Um, but, you know, you've got to stop behaving like that. But no, he carried on behaving as a serial paedophile with the protection of MI5, Richie, right from the 1970s all the way through. But it's just, re- I think, really important to get these specific examples of the way that it wasn't just a phenomenon that was, uh, you know, going on behind closed doors and uh, there was attempts to prosecute Savile in the 90s. No, it was going on way, way, way before that. And everybody, including... Chris told me the record producer Pete Waterman who I mean he was actually very good he did Banana Rama all these kinds of people in the 80s etc and uh, that he said yes the guy's a paedophile just make sure you keep him away because they he Chris told me he was they were thinking about booking Savile uh, for some event and they said well how long how old are the girls and and uh, only if they're uh, in their 20s is it safe because any any you know girls particularly underage girls Savile will just basically drag them off and potentially rape them so you mustn't have you know have him come to an event to to do that but this is i i found so interesting was this right you know it goes right way 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 back into the 70s and what is what is mi5 what is this is this is an organization which is run it's not just by itself it's 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 part of the royal um establishment so it's you know like mi6 it's part part partly ministry of um, ministry of defense um foreign office the mi6 is and the mi5 is home office but it's also uh it's also works very closely with the crown so this is we're talking about at the time the queen prince charles would almost certainly have known about savile this is way back into the 1970s in fact i think it's impossible to say they didn't know about it because if if uh, something like this is going on where someone's being protected who's a paedophile then the the officers etc who are protecting them would have to know that what they were doing got the had the approval of the royal family so that's why i think this is such an important indictment of of the british royal family particularly our now present king charles and his friendship with savile because he will have known right the way from the 1970s that he had these uh, tendencies to rape young girls and, and as a paedophile and this is one of the things i think is so concerning about charlie but you could hang on a second you could also make an argument that even even the future king would be in a need to know um, p- positions that that maybe you could make an argument that they withheld this information from him. I mean, he wasn't with Savile when Savile was raping children, and you know, going into the hospital and doing these unspeakable things. And if the security services knew, and I think you're bang on the money, of course they knew. We know that now. You know, you could make the argument that maybe they would have kept this information from Charles. For his own good, yeah. But the, I'm afraid it doesn't wash because the, the the way it works, because the actual individual royals are actually at the top of these services. What happens is if you don't tell them, and the the truth then comes out, and they didn't approve, you're for the high jump. That's the way these things work. You have to make sure that, uh, that that there is some awareness of your bosses about what's going on. And it's only if your bosses then give you the nod and the wink that you can carry on. Because if those boss, if uh, if your uh, Charles or the Queen, uh, I've no idea who would have been in charge of this, but certainly one or the other would have been. And Charles, by the way, now is abs- is in charge of all of the secret services. He's he's the um, the 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 honorary chief of GCHQ, MI6 and MI5 and he has formally made that 
made that position absolutely 100% transparently clear. Well, hang on, uh, hang on, 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 hang on. T, prove that to somebody who's listening to this who says, ah, come on, Tony, that's a load of bollocks. He's got nothing to do with MI5. We'd know he'd be on the letterhead or we would hear about it. It would be mentioned that he has a say. I mean, MI5 has a chief. I don't know who it is at the moment. And... uh, that, that's who calls the shots at MI5. Where's well, the proof the that Chris, doing That's the argument Chris Hewitt used to me, yeah. and I don't buy it because I know the situation is if you're, if you're a, an officer under orders and you see something that's going on that shouldn't be going on, you need to check that with somebody above to make sure that it does have approval from, from the top because if you get discovered to have been doing something criminal in, in the army, Without the approval of people above you, then you're in serious doo-doos. And you may well be, you know, the, literally the next day hung out to dry. So there's only one way that that, that, that that can have been going on, and that's with the approval of the higher-ups, Richie. That's what I believe. Yeah, and you might very well be right. That's um, pretty much it for today, mate. Thanks again for Thursday for today. Thanks for the work you've done. I'm sure that there, that, that more people... Um, over the years know about the existence of these secret societies because of the work you've done um, and I'm pretty proud of that so well done pal thisweek.org.uk well, I think also with, with the Bilderbergs they're all part of this plot to cancel God you know so there is this kind of uh, general feel out there that oh this is all very old fashioned this silly God stuff actually it's it's rather important that we've got a morality because as soon as you start saying oh it's a secular world we're going to you know just get rid of all this God, God stuff from our schools from everywhere else uh, you know no religious education well what that means is people are getting educated in something else whether it's you know money uh, whether it's all that we're all selfish. And I think this is one of the things that's changed the character of society. Th- you know, think about Google and the way that that's affected our relationships rather than chit-chat to people in a foreign country like, yeah. you know, like I'm in at the moment. You tend to look it up on your phone. You know, tr- you're not trying to communicate individually. You're now going through Eric Schmidt. And that's why he's one of the most powerful people who's been here this weekend at the Bilderberg meeting. And I'd just like to plug my book, by the way, which links the Bilderbergs absolutely with the Nazis at the end of the Second World War, it's called the Traitors of Arnhem. And uh, what I think I've absolutely proved there is that Bilderberg actually is a Fourth Reich Nazi operation. Uh, and that's why I keep following them and I keep uh, my eye on them because I think uh, that's that's the long and short of it is that we're now dealing with the aftermath of World War II still. Great work, T. The Traitors of Arnhem is a terrific read, folks. Tony, thanks very much. <laughs> Good to have you back on, pal. We'll speak real soon. Thank you very much again. Tony Gosling, uh, the Not the BCFM Politics Show, Not the BCFM Politics Show, live this Friday uh, from Bristol at five o'clock. Don't miss it. Brilliant stuff. Thank you again, Tony. Right, we uh, are going to take um, a short musical break. I will then read some of your comments or I'll do it the other way around no we'll take a short musical break and then we'll have um, really interesting guest called Sean Walsh on the programme can't wait to talk to Sean Monday's programme the Richie Allen show live from Salford richieallen.co.uk the brand or recently acquired app is on the app stores okay Jackie Wilson and the sweetest feeling on the Richie Allen show if you're just tuning in and you're wondering why I I shouldn't really draw attention to it you know they teach you in radio school there is a place called radio school I went there 
flunked it, had to go back and repeat it, radio school. As they say, don't draw attention to these things. People might not notice, but it's pretty bloody obvious that I'm missing half of the front teeth, upper jaw, <laughs> and trying to come. So I might sound a little bit manic today. I think I do sound a bit manic, actually. And tomorrow, I'm not on any painkillers. I haven't taken any today. But I might sound a little bit manic, if not a tiny bit distracted today and tomorrow. You will forgive me for that. It was an awful thing altogether, an awful thing for me to crunch into a bit of bread and for half of my mouth to break. (laughs) Which is an exaggeration, but, you know, something like that. Something along those lines. And today of all days, there's a little sound issue. Just a little sound issue. And my, my great pal, Paul Ripley, the great engineer, is talking to me remotely about sorting it out and it's the last, it's the worst possible day with everything that's going on, you know. But anyway, I hope all's well in your world. Welcome to the Richie Allen Show, if you've just tuned in. Uh, I haven't done this for a long time. The Richie Allen Show is live. I am live right now, speaking live from Salford 527, but it is archived on multiple platforms, including Podomatic.com. You can catch every episode if that is your thing. Do download the app, please. If you have a mobile phone and you can download an app, use, if you have an iPhone, go to the App Store. If you have an Android, go to Google Play and download the app because you can send messages to me instantly. And thank you to everybody who has sent instant messages today. Don says the whole worldwide narrative is run by the Fourth Reich. Thanks, Don. Hi to Christopher. Thank you, uh, Christopher. He says, uh, great, Richie. Oh, yeah, thank you, pal. I appreciate that. He said, don't broadcast it. Uh, Dean says, Savile was introduced into the royal family by Mountbatten in the 60s. Mountbatten was a known paedophile. He was. And he was monitored by the US Secret Services during the Second World War. This was released uh, through documentation a few years ago, says Dean. Thank you, Dean. Lovely to hear from you. Hi to Rich Hughes. Hi to Rich. How you doing, Rich? Lovely to hear from everybody this afternoon. Thank you, Monica, for the link as well. Hi to Susan Dunn. Good evening, Susan. And somebody said to me, you've got to say hello, Richie. We're off home from work. I don't know if I can find that now. Ah, Jesus. So many come in, you see. So many come in at the same time. I just lose them. Susan is in beautiful and sunny Windermere. It is gorgeous in Windermere. We drove through Windermere on, on, on Saturday and we made, we made our way to Grasmere because we love that little lake Grasmere with the island and the beautiful beach almost. And the dogs love it. They just go nuts for it. The golden retriever goes in and swims out far. She goes out great distances chasing ducks. The German Shepherd is up to my shoulders only. I'm not submerging myself says the German Shepherd, to the amusement of everybody watching on. Right, Monday's programme, it's time to get Sean on. Now, I've got a piece of music on standby because Sean has given me two ways to contact him today, such as the day that's in it. So I'll just line up a bit of music there. Talk amongst yourselves, dear listener, while I do that. Got uh, got a bit of Jeff lined up there. But Sean is a really interesting guy. He reached out to the programme. He's uh, a writer well-travelled writer, and lately he's been writing for the conservative woman. And his most recent piece is an excellent take on artificial intelligence. Excellently written. You might agree with his take, you might not agree. Uh, It's entitled, Robots Taking Over? 
robots taking over, pull the other one. And I want to talk about it because he makes some very interesting points. And you might remember a couple of weeks back, my engineer Paul Ripley and his brother Nick, who are presenting these days a brilliant podcast on AI entitled The Future Was Yesterday. And they talked about the pitfalls of artificial intelligence and the things we need to look out for. So I recommend you check out conservativewoman.co.uk and Sean Walsh. Let's dial them up while I'm chatting with you. Yeah, you're, you're very, very professional today, Richie. I am, I'm very professional. It's one of those days. This is a Monday that will go down in history. Tomorrow's programme might be even more interesting after I've spent a couple of hours at a local dentist. Yeah, so it's looking like we're going to have to contact Sean the other way. I think I can do that without doing anything else. Let's see, can we get him on? Um, leave a message also, by the way, via the website, richieallen.co.uk, where it says comment live. Now, do you remember a few weeks ago, Elon Musk, the billionaire, the Tesla man, and the man behind Twitter. He's not behind Twitter. He is the man currently running Twitter. Twitter is in his hands. Although lately he has confirmed, hasn't he, Musk? He's confirmed lately that he plans to appoint somebody else to run the company on, on his behalf. So Musk came out and said, in fact, he signed a letter along with a lot of other tech guys saying, let's have a moratorium on artificial intelligence the development of the technology. Let's stop because it has profound implications for humanity and we're going a bit too quickly and we need to slow down. And that um, created, I wouldn't say a bit of a panic, but a lot of stories in the news about the dangers of AI, what it might do in the future, the job losses and all of that. And of course, lately as well, we've talked a lot about ChatGPT, the chatbot that you can download you can pay a price for it if you want or you can get a free version and it will do all sorts of things for you write essays write books and what have you so sean walsh is a writer he's written this really interesting piece for the conservative woman it's entitled robots taking over pull the other one i'm delighted to welcome to the program today absolutely delighted to welcome sean walsh sean welcome to the show how are you not too bad. Can you hear me okay? Uh, loud and clear. I'll make a slight adjustment there. But uh, you sound okay. beautiful, Sean. Welcome. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. It's, it's a pleasure to be on. Thank you very much for having me. No, no, the pleasure is mine. It's a brilliantly written piece. Thank you. So let's get straight down to it. And we will talk a little bit about yourself later on because you're an interesting man who's had some very interesting experiences. But um, I've heard from people, Sean, in recent years, I've heard from a NASA employee. I've heard from, you know, my, my, my sound engineer. I've heard from journalists who've said, look, the singularity is a genuine concern at the rate of accelerated learning. Maybe in the near future, it will happen that the machines, the programs will become self-aware. And then that's... That could prove catastrophic for humanity, or in some cases, they've said the AIs might get tired of us and they might leave the planet altogether. You're, in your excellent article, you argue that um, the artificial, in artificial intelligence, as said by Professor John Lennox from Oxford University, is very real. That we're getting our knickers in a twist about nothing. That's what you believe. Yes. Um and um, that I, I think that quote's really good. I don't think it was John Lennox, actually. I think I misquoted him. Um, but um, artificial... 
I, I wanted in that piece to make a distinction between artificial intelligence and, and consciousness um, in the following way. that I, I do believe that computers are probably more intelligent than we are, but it doesn't mean that they know they're more intelligent than we are. The consciousness is a very distinct thing from intelligence. Can you explain that as you understand it, Sean? Because I think I do, but, I, but I'm not sure. Because it's a really interesting concept that they might be even more intelligent than we are, but that doesn't mean that they're conscious. Kind of flesh that out a bit, because that's the fascinating aspect for me. Okay. Well, the example would always be chess computers. Uh, I mean, how chess computers could beat grandmasters at chess, um, because they basically run algorithms at, at accelerated rates. And they can analyze, I, I hesitate to say it in this way, but a, a computer can analyze stuff in a way that we can't. But what they don't have is the kind of range of consciousness. That if, if, I remember when I was a kid losing a chess game in, in, in my hometown of High Wycombe. I got really upset about losing the game. Right. Um, so when a chess computer can actually sweep the, the, the characters off the board, and that's when it demonstrates to me consciousness, not when it actually wins the game. When it, when it crows triumphantly at you uh, as, it, um, as it takes your queen, right? Then, then it's conscious. Yeah, or it's, or it's disappointed when it loses. Or if it gets fed up because, when it loses. Because, because, sorry, Richard, I've spoke over you then. You haven't. Go ahead. No, it's, it's about you, Sean. Go ahead. Um, it, it, consciousness is not just a system of algorithms. It's it's a kind of range of reference whereby you engage with the world. And consciousness involves disappointments. It involves love. It involves resentment. Yeah. Um, and I don't see we're anywhere near to that singularity when it comes to computers. In fact, I'll, I'll go further than that. I'll quote the the American philosopher. Um, John Searle, who says a computer is only a computer to the extent we think it's a computer. The computer doesn't know it's a computer. Now, when, when the Google employee shocked the world last year by saying that he was convinced the chatbot he was conversing with was conscious because it talked to him about feeling lonely. I mean, it went, it went into a lot of depth, didn't it, the chatbot, about its feelings. Do, do you yeah. think why if it if if that chatbot wasn't conscious as you believe it probably wasn't, why was it able to convince a pretty smart employee that it had feelings of loneliness and isolation? Because the employee was prepared to believe it in the first place. You know, it's, it's, it's the whole Turing test thing, isn't it? That um, you know, if a computer can convince you it's conscious, it must be conscious, but. I, I, I don't buy that argument. I, I, I think that that's... Okay, let's, let's, let's make a separation of two different things. The intelligence from consciousness. I believe computers are intelligent. I get that. But conscious, I don't get that bit. And I don't see what weird alchemy would, would, would translate yeah. from, a, a, from a, an algorithm into consciousness. Can we, park, can we park that for a minute and talk about the intelligence then? Do you think, yeah. and, and by the way, I'm loving this, this, this is manna from heaven for me, because I'm fascinated by it, I really am. When you say intelligent, could that mean 
in the near future a a computer program that has been designed to run a military program to to to, to man and to even run an assault system or a defence system. Could it be possible then that the intelligence itself might be sufficient for the computer to make autonomous decisions and start firing at targets without a human general saying, right, we need to attack that target over there. Is that something that might be possible? Could that be, could, could that intelligence, is, is that something that you, you would not need consciousness to happen? Would the intelligence be sufficient for the computer to say, right, I'm going to fire at this target? Yeah, but you in, you you inserted the word autonomous, didn't you? I did, yeah. And autonomous implies that it knows what it's doing. No, I, I'm perfectly happy to accept that um, computers are, are, are basically algorithms and um, they can accelerate themselves in terms of more complicated algorithms. So maybe something like you described could happen, but I don't believe the computer knows what it's doing. But it wouldn't know what it's doing. So, no. and I, I, I don't think you could you, you could um, announce malign intent on the part of computers because I don't think computers know that they're conscious because they're not. For most of us, John. And, and, and so, sorry. No, sorry. no, you, no. You finish your point. Go ahead. Uh, and you know, and part of my my thinking about this is, I, I, I you know, I, I come come at it from a slightly theological perspective as well. I don't think it's in our gift to create consciousness. Now, w- w- would so, that mean that you're a religious man? Yes, I am, yeah. Um, you're obviously a very bright man. I say that not to patronise you at all. You're an excellent writer. It's a brilliantly written article. I, I can't recommend it highly enough, especially for those of us that, you know, have come to believe that the singularity is possible. Now, I say that I believe it is possible, but I can't back it up with any science because I don't have any, uh, you know, I don't have, have that background. But is there any possibility that your belief in God might be influencing you on this? Your, you know, that there might be some kind of subconscious desire that it doesn't happen because of I your own belief? So. Yeah. <laughs> I hope my belief in God affects everything that I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, am I? Could I be wrong? Of course, I could be wrong. Um, I mean, my PhD was in the philosophy of artificial intelligence, so I was kind of reasonably up to speed with yeah. it. You were um, in, you were but, into it early then, Sean. Yeah, I was. Yeah, you, you're calling me old now, aren't you, Rich? No, no, yeah, yeah. It sounds like that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I don't mean to call you old, but but like you, you would have been fascinated by James Cameron's Terminator, then, wouldn't you? Because the the central premise for Anybody who hasn't seen it, and most of the world has, has seen Terminator. Cameron's idea was that man keeps building these sophisticated machines and eventually the machines become aware of who they are and decide to get rid of man. I mean, that's... That's the bit I don't believe. It's the bit you don't believe, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think um, you, you, you rely on a really interesting point there, which is about the nature of consciousness and embodiment, that we we aren't just we aren't just streams of consciousness, but our actual physical bodies determine the way we think. So when you mention robots, I think that's quite an interesting point. I, but I, I, I just, I, I can't, I, 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 I have views about, about the nature of consciousness, and I don't think that it's up to human beings to generate it. Obviously, in a trivial sense it is, 
because if two people get together and make a baby, they're generating consciousness. I get yeah. that. Um, but I think there's a tendency these days that we think because we are technolo- technologically adept that we are actually able to uh, to play God, if I can put it like that. It really is well. It really is so well written. You talk about how a computer, how a chatbot could tell a joke. Algorithm-based intelligence could never get a joke. So algorithm-based intelligence could tell you a, a, a gag, but not, um, but not, but not actually get it. So if you told the computer a joke, it's not going to get it. And then you explain this. You say that an algorithm is a system of rules ordered towards a certain aim. Computers and therefore machines or robots are no more than complex collections of human-designed algorithms. And even if these algorithms become clever enough to generate yet more complex algorithms, the original author remains the same, the person. More pertinently, uh, more pertinently, excuse me, the human person who designed the original algorithm. And that really makes sense when you read it like that in black and white. And then you go on to say very quickly... What beautiful bit of prose this. The tedious syntax of the algorithm can never aspire to the kaleidoscopic majesty of the human mind. There is no alchemy which which could convert artificial intelligence into genuine consciousness. And that's the central thesis. That's your central yeah, argument I, there. I, yeah. And I, I talk about um, humour as well, don't I? Yeah. About getting a joke. Yeah, about getting the gag. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, and you know, you and I ha- are having this, this this interesting conversation. I'm not sure I could have this conversation with the computer. With you know, with, you know, I probably could have the conversation with the computer, but I wouldn't necessarily believe what the computer what the computer was telling me. Now that's interesting. That takes us back to the Google employee last year who became convinced that the chatbot had feelings. Now you again, you're you're right to say that. The algorithm is a system of rules ordered towards a certain name, rules created by the person who designed the algorithm, right? But in the case of the chatbot that expressed feelings of loneliness, I think when the Google employee was asked about this, the the algorithm hadn't been designed to mimic feelings of loneliness. This is what shocked them, I think. How, how do you, how, you know, how do you, how do we explain that if it wasn't ordered to you know, mimic human behaviour of sorrow, of isolation. And all of a sudden it's coming up with sorrow and isolation. That's the bit that spooked me. Well, I mean, do, do, do you believe what it says? I mean, it's, it's just another Turing test, isn't it? That, that, you know, these computers or robots can come up with stuff that you, that, that, that you want to hear. Yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't believe these robots have feelings. I might, I might not believe, believe them either, but if that particular algorithm wasn't designed to trick the human being into believing it was real, why then did it decide to trick the human being into believing it was real? That's, well, I can't get around that, you see. Question. That's a fair question, and I could be wrong about this. No, I'm not but saying I, you're wrong I, at all. This is fascinating. I, I, I don't know. And maybe, maybe Google, I, I mean, listen, it's, it's really ironic of me to say, let's believe the Google employee when he says the algorithm wasn't designed to mimic human behaviour. Maybe it was. Maybe he's lying. But if it wasn't, it, it certainly throws up some questions. Sean, do you know I'm a bit terrified of it? Do you know why? I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a blue-collar lad from Waterford in Ireland. And um, I did a lot of blue-collar jobs. And I would do any job tomorrow to 
to support my family, as would my missus, lest I be accused of misogyny, and I'm sure you would as well. But when you hear BT come out, and it's just one company showing, and they say that, um, you know, 55,000 jobs are going to go, and a lot of those are going to be basically managed by these programmes, whether it's conscious or not, we can park that for a minute, profound consequences for humanity, this, this development, isn't it? I agree. And, and I think um, the absorption um, of society in, in, into machinery is extremely worrying. And I think one of the, I wrote that piece about two weeks ago, and I never read stuff I've written, so I've sort of forgotten what I said. But I think one of the things I said was that um, the problem with AI is that it, it's kind of, tempting us to think of ourselves as machines rather than machines as thinking of themselves as being conscious. Yeah, I'm with and, you, I'm with you know, I think that. that's, that's the big ethical question. What, what, what do we... I wonder what have they planned for people? Like, I, I have mentioned on the show probably too many times that my missus is um, an accountant and works for a big firm, um, a well-known global firm. Now, she's very realistic, you know, and she's clued into some of the agendas that we talk about on programmes like this, Sean. And she yeah. she knows that the programmes are not in development. They're already in existence. And it won't be long before millions of employees around the world who work in finance, millions, if not tens of millions, are going to be told, right, folks, we're sorry, thanks for all your help over the years, but we're covered now, we don't need you anymore. What have they planned for people, I wonder? What do they I expect? think that's really worrying, isn't it? Yeah. What I, do you I, think? I think it also. Sorry, Richie. I, no, no. I, I, no, I was just saying. No, I was just saying. What, what do you, no, no. I was just saying. What do you think? I mean, what what have they got planned for us? What will it mean for us in the future? I, I think, if I can go off on a, on a slight tangent here, absolutely. I think the nature of what we think of money is is changing. Um, you know, I, I wrote a piece for uh, Daniel Johnson's magazine, the article, two or three years ago, in which I, I kind of say that we, we used to have this wonderful relationship with money. We, we would have um, expressions, a score, a pony, you know, and all that stuff. And we've lost it. You know, if money's become something which has been confiscated by by government, and it's not it's not only fools and horses anymore. It's it's kind of big government, and that's a real worry for me. Yeah, and sometime in the if next. If I go off on a radical tangent, now I'm sorry. No, no, it's an important tangent because I mean, look, it's on it's it's on topic, isn't it? Because when the digital pound is unveiled in three years or maybe a bit less. We know, I went to, as I mentioned at the top of the show, up at the Lake District, going to uh, the pub to get a, a couple of drinks. People are paying with their phone. They're not paying with cash any, anymore. At least I don't see anybody using cash these days. But it's obviously algorithms and artificial intelligence that's going to run this new central bank digital currency, isn't it, in the future? Yeah, yeah. Well, they're, they're basically announcing where they are to the government. Yeah. And it's going to be a rules-based currency, of course. So it, it will, your ability to spend it will be determined by an artificial, by, by, by an algorithm. 
is it right that this guy should be buying, I don't know, a fillet steak today? Maybe it isn't. Yeah. I mean, these, I mean, these are genuine, th- these are things that are b- being spoken openly about now. Sean, let me do a quick recap. Sean Walsh is a writer. He's a very good writer. Check him out online, The Conservative Woman, terrific article on artificial intelligence and why Sean doesn't believe that robots will take over, that the singularity is not something that can happen. We've been speaking about that for the last few minutes. Sean, let me read. Um, can, some... I, can I just say something about um, TC, The Conservative Woman? Do. Jump right in. Go ahead. They, they are... Um... Cathy Gingell and uh, Laura, they're absolutely wonderful editors. They're absolutely the best. And um, I've been a, probably quite a problematic writer for them in the past, but they've always forgiven me my transgressions. So I just want to give them a shout out because I think they're fantastic. They seem to be lovely. Um, I don't know them personally, but we are connected. Cassie and myself are connected on, on Twitter and we've had a couple of um, friendly exchanges. It, it's brilliant to have the conservative woman it's you know while we have it I don't mean to be pessimistic or or bring the mood down but while we're allowed to say the things we, we would like to say it, it's great to have the website there so yeah nice I of you to say that website that, that it's the only one I'll get up in the morning and actually have a look at. I'll look at your stuff um, but with the conservative woman I, I, I think it's um, I think it's kind of particularly special. I think they're wonderful people. Yeah, there's such and a wide range of authors there as well. Such a, I hate to say this, I hate to use the term diverse, but it's appropriate. But such a diverse range of opinion. It's how it used to yeah. be, Sean. Yeah, I mean, they're proper. I mean, I know you're a, a, quite a rigorous journalist, uh, but I think the Conservative woman does a fantastic job. They're brilliant. Absolutely right. Sean Walsh is our guest, folks. Let me just read a couple of comments, um, Sean. Really good comments coming in. Um, Faisal reckons, you can only ever be sure of your own consciousness. There is no way of confirming a machine's consciousness or even another person's. For example, there is no way of knowing for sure if Bill Gates is self-aware or not. He walks and talks, but is anyone actually in there, says uh, Faisal. That's pretty... Uh, I'm pretty sure he isn't. <laughs> there is that vacant look sometimes <laughs> with good case. If robot, he is. Yeah, if anybody, yeah, walking, talking, yeah. Uh, Joe Public says, so are computers going to be the next minority community we need to support, he says. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, isn't that interesting? And add a C to LGBTC. Didn't the Saudis recognise the rights of a robot, Sean, about two years ago? I don't know. They did. But I don't see why they would. I, I, I think if, if you, you know, I, I don't believe, like we've been talking about, I don't believe in machine consciousness. But if you accept the machine is conscious, if you unplug it, is that murder? You see? Now, in October 2017, um, Sophia was granted Saudi Arabian citizenship, becoming the first robot to receive legal personhood in any country. Yes, I knew I wasn't blinded by yesterday's painkillers. That's right. She was named the, Uni- <laughs> the United Nations Development... I didn't want to talk about that. No, <laughs> I don't want to talk about it, Sean. No, because I'm, I'm dreading tomorrow. I'm terrified of dentists. Like, genuinely. Everybody is scared of them, but I'm, I've got a real phobia. So, yeah, I, I've, got a, I've got a morning from hell tomorrow. But, yeah, she was named the United Nations Development Programme's first innovation champion and the first non-human to be given a United Nations title. So it wasn't a PR stunt. Saudi Arabia 
granted rights to this robot that had presumably, I shouldn't say presumably, that was manufactured by a person. They gave it um, citizenship. So that's a really interesting comment by um, by Joe. Yes, I wonder. I, I mean, I, I think what I'd say to that, Richie, is that, um, and I can't remember if I said this in the, in the article or not, but um, to the extent that we think of machines as being conscious, it's a very devolved consciousness. It's, it, you know, it's a system of interpretations we have of what the machine's doing. Yes. If that makes sense. It does make sense, yeah. It does, uh, and thanks for speaking in those terms because I, I can, I can, I can get lost pretty quickly when it comes to the tech stuff. But it does just, just for balance, right? Have you heard of Mo Gaudat? He used to be Google's chief business officer at their R and D Wing X, so research and development. He says that I haven't. No. Yeah, in his opinion, this is an article dated the eighteenth of May, Mail Online, Mail Online. I know, I know, but he says um. Artificial intelligence could come to view humanity as scum and even take over military drones to exterminate us. So he's going right down the James Cameron um, rabbit hole, isn't he? He says that AI will eventually have the power to love humanity or to squish humanity like flies. But again, the sad thing about these bloody articles is he's not being challenged by somebody like you. They're not saying to him, well, well hang on, Mo, you know. Yeah, because, because you know, like like a, we were talking about earlier on, it's 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 possible, it's conceivable that the algorithms can run out of control and there could be a catastrophe. But to say that a computer can decide to to do this yeah. is is to you know um, ascribe consciousness to the computer, and I I just don't believe that. And I'm on the fence. Do you know that, Sean? I I I, I suppose did believe it until very recently recently now i'm on the fence and i know that the agents of accelerationism as tony gosling explained earlier on the agents of the great reset i know they it's like brilliant. to uh, they like to distract us with things and send yeah. us down rabbit holes and maybe all this talk of ai is just a bloody rabbit hole while i think i, I think I, I think you're absolutely uh, correct to speculate in that direction yeah it wouldn't surprise me it wouldn't surprise me. Um, let me read another couple of comments, Sean. People are loving this. It's really interesting, this. Um, I get worried, though, Sean, right? Don't, I know, don't read anything nasty about me, because I'm very... Um, I like to be I'm balanced, Sean. insecure. You don't sound very insecure, <laughs> but... Um, and, I, and, and, and you've you've had a very interesting life, and we want, I want to talk about something very personal with you in a moment. Okay. Um, Paul has been, on, been in touch, funnily enough. Now, Paul is my engineer who's making the... AI podcast oh, with his brother Nick. Yeah, he's a lovely fellow, Paul. Yeah, one of, one, one, he's one of my greatest ever pals. He says, Richie, when you consider how the brain works, to me, it's only a matter of time before singularity is here. Our life is only built on memories and training, like AI is being built on now. However, if you believe in a higher knowledge or believe in God, I understand why you wouldn't think this way, says says Paul, yeah. And I'm I'm agnostic, yeah, he's, you see. He's a guy, isn't he? Um, okay, sorry, carry on. No, no, you go ahead. If you, if you want to respond to that, go ahead, yeah. Um, well, there's an assumption there that the mind is the same thing as the brain, and it's, it's not one I buy into, possibly for theological reasons, but also because I, I, I don't accept the idea that what is right about 
and Paul's right about most things. I get that. Um, it's that the mind is just a phenomenally incomprehensible system of algorithms, but of, 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 well, it's just phenomenally complex. And we don't really understand it. We don't understand why this two-pound lump of grey matter can generate um, everything it generates. And all the feelings we experience, you know, love, yeah. anger, empathy, compassion, sorrow. And, you know, you, you can use the term soul if you want, because I'm, ag- I'm agnostic. I, I used to be an atheist. I used to be very definite in my opinion, which I never rammed down anybody's throat. But I used to think, I just don't buy into this higher power, creator kind of a thing. Now I'm not so sure. I'm, I'm a bit more on the fence about that. But, but you're getting there, and it's worth saying, because many of our listeners will be totally on board. They will believe we have a soul and that a computer program invented by even the most brilliant designers of programs can't have a soul. And a lot of people will agree with that. Well, it, the computer program will inhabit the assumptions of the person who programs it. So, you know, uh, that has to be the case, doesn't it, Richie? I mean, it, yeah. it, you know, it's not going it's not, it's not to have a soul of its own. Yeah, you might be you might be right on that. I'd love to know. I mean, I would give anything to know whether the Google employee was telling the truth about how this chatbot was designed. And if the chatbot was not designed to be trying to fool people into believing it was a feeling, you know, conscious thing, well then I'd be very very interested. But we just don't well, you know. Could, you could always tell. You could always tell that you've been faked. Yeah, you know, in my opinion, you know, I, I just, I just would not believe it. Um, and so, you mentioned, um, you know, the whole range of human feelings includes negative feelings, and computers are programmed to actually be correct all the time. And one, of the, one of the wonderful things about being human, a human person, is that you get stuff wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did anyone ever program the computer to get stuff wrong? I'm not sure. No, but you mentioned earlier that you got angry when you were beaten by your electronic chess set. But but early on, Deep Blue was beaten by your man, the Russian guy. Am I right in saying that? Kasparov. Yeah, is that right? Did Kasparov beat the machine early on until eventually it became unbeatable? Well, what happened was that he lost to the computer. Yeah, and he wanted a rematch, and it was point, pointed out to him um, that uh, there's no way IBM was going to do a rematch because they they'd won. You know, they weren't they weren't going to let Kasparov come back and have another go. For, right, for, for, for commercial and financial reasons, as much as anything. I didn't know that. Thanks for that. Isabel says, Richie, could you ask Sean about recent news on TV? on the concept that artists could soon use AI and virtual reality to replace them on stage or in, a, or in a film. I remember Tom Hanks was mentioned. Yeah, I think Hanks has said that, that the technology is nearly there, that the person, and this horrifies me, I mean, this makes me sick, to be honest, that the actor could say, right, I'm never leaving my mansion in Beverly Hills and the film company can take my avatar and put me in any film they like for for a certain fee. And if you watch it in the cinema, to all intents and purposes, 
It looks like Tom Hanks in the flesh. You see, this is where I start to become a bit spiritual, Sean. To me, this is... It's almost... I hate to use this term, but that's almost... Demonic, in a way. Am I allowed to swear? You can if you want. You know where you are. You know where you are. Go ahead. <laughs> that is just uh, fucking unbelievable. Isn't it, though? Uh, yeah, I mean... I don't, I don't even have a reply to it, to be honest. It, it's, it, why would any actor want to want to connive in that kind of uh, fakery? It's madness. Why? Yeah, but, yeah. You know, it's like um, it's like I think I, I, I said something in that that piece that you so generously quoted about um, teachers marking homework using AI. And how on earth can you expect a machine to be able to interpret the levels of complexity that, that accompany a Shakespeare play? Yeah. You, you just can't do it. Yes, and the machine um, doesn't know what else is going on around the child. The machine isn't watching the child in the classroom every day, so it wouldn't understand that even if point. it... Yeah, that even if the child doesn't demonstrate exact understanding in the, in the essay... It's because the child isn't the best writer in the world, but the child is demonstrating understanding in the classroom. The AI won't see that, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a really good point. Um, because, you know, um, there is something about human interaction which in always, always involves an act of imagination. And I don't think that the computer has that relevant imagination. I tell you what I'm going to do now, right? We're going to say that AI is to be continued because next time Paul and Nick come on, we should have a bit of a round table and have a right good crack uh, and have a right good crack at this. Crack as in we'll enjoy it and have a good crack at AI. Um, That's a good Irish term. It is. It's our best term, by it's, the way. It's spelled, it's, it's spelled C-R-A-I-C, isn't it? That's right, C-R-A-I-C, yes. Not yeah, because so, so, I, I, I did my first degree in Belfast and I, I was... What's the crack? What's the crack? What's the crack? Yeah. What about you? What the crack? That's right, yeah, yeah. Sean Walsh is our guest. We will pick this up again, particularly because I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. Sean might be right. Sean might be right that consciousness is impossible, but it doesn't mean that military installations around AI couldn't just start killing people. You know, I I, I don't think those things are mutually you, you know exclusive. But but but. but okay. Um, and, and that's something we're keeping, especially with Boston Dynamics manufacturing robots to go out on uh, patrol and for those robots to be police officers and also to be managed by artificial intelligence algorithms making decisions on the ground whether or not to arrest Sean Walsh because he's been telling too much truth on the conservative woman or <laughs> no seriously you know or whether to say all right John yeah <laughs> find you first yeah but but the machine but it, it will be a machine making that decision will bring Sean in for questioning or Sean can go home uh to um you know to his glass of wine or whatever it is so we'll definitely come back no, I don't to this do that anymore. but th- we'll definitely come back to that but you mentioned today on the phone and um it seemed to it's 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 an emotional thing this because I was nearly there myself, but it didn't happen to me. But you, at one time, were homeless. Yeah. And Two years. How did that and, happen, uh, and how did you get, have, get through have, have it? Have we got five minutes to talk about this, Richard? Well, this is why I brought it up now. We've got ten minutes. 
Okay, all right, I'll, I'll make it brief then. Um, I, I was, I, I drank myself and my then six-year-old son into homelessness. And um, I get quite emotional about this actually, but I remember a social worker turned up to pick my son Benjamin up to take him, I live in, I was living in, uh, well, I still live in Wiltshire, to, to take him a hundred miles to my mother's house so she could look after him. My mother wasn't talking to me. And my thought was, as he was driven away from me, thank God for that, I can go back to the pub and have a drink. That was how spiritually um, uh, bereft I was at that point in my life. And subsequent to that, I was two years homeless, six months of it street homeless. I was sleeping on benches in Warminster and then hostel homeless. And I, I got lucky because the hostel that actually found me um, helped me get well. How did they do that? I think they just provided a safe space. I mean, I think I realised that I needed to, you know, I wanted my son to actually have a father. Um, and I needed to get sober. So the hostel, um, which is based in Salisbury, a hostel called Elaborate, just, just basically created a safe space around me, in, in, you know, in order it allowed me to do the work I needed to do. What did you do, Sean? Did you, was, did you go into a programme? Yeah, I went to, I, I, yeah, and Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I didn't do rehab, but I, I was working very, very hard every day to uh, stay sober on that day. Can I ask you and, this? You know, yeah. I wanted to ask you. Is it a slippery slope or was it a slippery slope with you? Was it drinking that became steadily more kind of heavy or was it just a quick thing where you just started and you, you were addicted so you just drank heavily from day one or like I said, was it a slippery slope thing? Were there life experiences that were, you know, had an impact on you and, and led you to the drink? Because it is, I, go ahead, Sean. No, no, sorry, you carry on. I keep talking over you. No, 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 you're not. I should shut up and let you speak. I'm, I'm making a balls of asking the question I want to ask because I can't phrase it properly. Was it a gradual thing that you kind of lost control over? Or was it down to something? It, 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 it became, even if, I wasn't have, even if I didn't have a drink in my hand, I, I think my mother might be listening to this. I don't really want to upset her too much. Um, but I, even if I didn't have a drink in my hand, I was thinking about alcohol all the time. And it was kind of strange. I, I, I saw someone who was teetotal. I was thinking, they're not right. Something wrong with Why them. Yeah. So that's just how uh, twisted my mind was at the time. What was your lowest point in the two years? I think probably, I did, like what I just said, I think it was probably when uh, Ben was being driven away from me, but I didn't realise at that point that that was my lowest point. Yeah. And then all sorts of things were going wrong. I mean, the police were involved in the life over nonsense. Um, and I, I, I was just a complete mess. But you're um, here now, huh? And, I, you know, I, I now do some voluntary work for the same 
charity that, that helped me. Um, and I, this is going to sound very strange, Richie, but it, it was almost the best period of my life was when I was homeless. But I wouldn't want to go back to it. Tell me what you mean by almost the best time of your life. Why? It was, there's a grammar of homelessness. I, I, I mean, I, I live in Devizes now in Wiltshire, and I walk past homeless people every day and I speak to them. And it's a kind of subculture. They have their own language. Day. That sounds awful, doesn't it? But, no, no, I know what you mean. Um, you know, and there's, there's, there's an etiquette as well about homelessness. And when I was in, when I was first taken off the street and put into a hostel, um, I met people whom I would say were probably the best people I've ever met. But I, I don't want to go back to it. That's all paradoxical, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, I knew quite a few homeless people in Waterford when I was working on the radio there. I was, embar- yeah. I was embarrassed one day because I, I, I'm not a bad person, but I would walk past, back then I would walk past the homeless gentlemen and the ladies. I would just walk past them. I wouldn't ignore them now, but I would just keep going, you know, not wanting to be yeah. caught up, you know, in, in their conversation. And that was wrong, obviously. And, and one, one, one evening, a lovely homeless lad called Paul from Kerry, he asked me, he saw me running past with the... Um, I had an old, um, I had a mini disc player and a microphone, so I'd been to a hotel to interview somebody. And he asked me, uh, why don't you stop and talk to us with your microphone? And um, I was mortified. I was really embarrassed, you know. And I said, Jesus, you're right. I said, you, you, have, you have a story to tell, don't you? So from that day yeah. on, and this will be known in Waterford, I would regularly, and I'm not looking for any credit for this because I don't deserve any, because I had to be asked to do this. But from that day on, um, we made time every couple of weeks. We made time to talk to the homeless folks when we did the Vox Pops, but we brought them into the studio and asked them to explain if they wanted to how they ended up, um, you know, in a difficult situation and you know what help they were getting and stuff. But it was so embarrassing. Why don't you speak to us? And I thought, Jesus, there's no answer to that, is there? You, you know, know what I don't like as well. And, and I'm going to sound churlish by saying this. I don't like it when people buy homeless people a sandwich. Why not? You know, they'll say, I, I, I don't want to give them money in case they spend it on alcohol or drugs. And, you know, my, my view about that is, having been a chronic alcoholic, at some point you bloody need a drink. Yeah. You don't need a sandwich. Yeah. And it's kind, it kind of robs them of, their last remaining bit of autonomy when, I, when people do that. I so would that's, never that's, have... That's me being churlish. No, you're not being churlish. I would never have considered that. Now, my better half is an angel. And when she's in the city centre, she will ask... When we happen upon somebody in the doorway, she's an angel. She really is. I'm not just saying it. She will ask the person, would they like something to eat? Yeah. She won't turn up and hand food to anybody. She will say, look, are you hungry? Can I get you anything? And, you know, I think most times the answer has been, please, yeah, I'll have, you know, get us um, a takeaway, get us a KFC or something. But yeah. um, but, but I, I didn't consider what you said before, but yeah, I suppose, yeah. Because I was nearly there, you know, I really was nearly there. I mean, I was, I was days away from it and was preparing myself for it. 
wondering how I'm going to survive it. And and well, uh, you do because you, because that's a fellowship of homelessness. Um, and you said there's an etiquette. You said, I'd love to get into that in more depth on another show. There's an etiquette. You said, homeless people. Yeah, there is. It's, it's got its own grammar. It's like I mean, I, there are some people who blag. You know, they they beg. Horrible word, but they they'll sit down in the street and ask for money. And I can always tell whether they're genuine or not because there's a kind of grammar and vocabulary of homelessness. So I will say to them, how long have you been out for, Right. for example? And if they're genuinely homeless, they'll know what that means. Did um, you... Because, yeah, we know that gangs do send people out to pose as... Yeah, they do. We yeah. know that for a fact. You found yourself in a situation where you were asking strangers for money. Yeah. How you're a sentient, lucid, very intelligent, brilliantly written bloke. What does that do to you when you find yourself asking people for money? I did. It was my fault, Richie, that I was in that situation. So you know, I wasn't going. I wasn't going to blame anyone else. What? distressed me was people would walk past me on their way to church. Right. For example. And I thought, I remember thinking, well, that's just fucking hypocritical. It's hardly what Jesus would do, right? No, he wouldn't. But I, I actually don't think Jesus would go to church. I, I put this in an article during lockdown. I said, I don't think Jesus would attend church because it's, what goes on in church is so flipping awful and hypocritical. But I, 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 I had it. I had people walk past me, and you know they assume that you're scum. Yeah, and maybe I was. No, you weren't scum. You but know, I mean, but, but we know, know the assumptions you're talking about. They assume that you know. Um, that, that, well, you're 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 a useless junkie. You're a useless alky. You don't do anything for yourself. You're a scrounger. All these things, but. But, All right, don't rub it in. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, 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 but. I'm joking. No, I know you were joking. But, but I suppose, and maybe I was like that when I was a younger man. You know that you don't. It doesn't. It doesn't occur to you straight away that. I, I, I think there's the, a reason this person is in this situation. I, the problem I had was that um, my son was taken away from me. I looked after the wider family, who weren't talking to me. So it was all very strange. Um, but, you know, everything's been uh, sorted out now. You know, I still struggle with, with alcohol. I still have to go day by day not having a drink because that's... The addiction is in my bones. And that, the writing helps, actually. That so. takes some courage, though. If you're still finding yourself craving and your instinct is to get to a meeting or to call a sponsor or see somebody, you know, the easy thing to do, and I'm not speaking as an expert, I'm not, and I don't want to sound like I, I think I know everything, I don't, but it, I suppose the easy thing to do is to, is to lie to yourself and then open a, you know, a bottle of something. But it takes balls what you do every day. It, I really admire um, that. I, 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 have, um, I have a son who reflects back at me goodness every single day. And I don't want to lose him again. And I don't want, more importantly, I don't want him to lose me again. Because, you know, he lost his father for a couple of years. 
And have you had pro- have you had good conversations with him about it? Because I know from reading about the program that you've got to make amends with people and and explain yeah. to people. Step nine. Is it step nine? Is it? Yeah. Yeah, you you, you go and you speak to people that you, if it's appropriate, you go and make amends to them. And you've had these conversations with your son. I imagine yeah. they weren't easy. I wouldn't imagine. Well, he's, um, I don't know how to describe Ben. He's just absolutely astonishing young man now. Um, and he's, he, he had to put up with that. He's now 13. I mean, this, this was going on when he was six and seven years old. Um, and if he... Oh, how can I explain it? He just radiates warmth and loveliness. But so um, do you, Sean. You know, so do you. Well, you can tell a lot about people from listening to them speak. I've been listening to people speak on the radio since 1998. And you can't fake humanity. You can't fake empathy and compassion. And it shines out of you, just your voice alone. So well, he, I was lucky. he gets from his old man. Richie, I was lucky. It's as simple as that. I, I got lucky. And um, I got lucky in a harsh way. That um, People who... You know, I was very destructive when I was... In, when I was a big drinker, I was, you know, I didn't really give a shit about anybody else. I would borrow money and steal money. And, you know, my family had to protect themselves. Um, and, you know, I lost them for a couple of years. But now, because they're wonderful people, including my mother, who's a pain in the ass, but she's absolutely lovely. They eventually came back to me and forgave me, and that's the biggest thing that you can have in your life is someone to forgive you. We got a bit heavy here, didn't we? I thought we were going to talk about AR. That's oh, important, all this as well, isn't it? Because this will mean a lot to people. And I'm looking at the messages coming in through the app, and there are so many of them. People saying it's beautiful to listen to you, applauding you for your courage in speaking about these things and being so frank about it. I, I I could spend the next 10 minutes reading them out and I'm not just saying that, I don't tell lies and there are many messages on the website as well. It's a subject well, I think, it, you know, no, and, and they'll be genuine. I think it's a subject we should pick up um, again in the future. Congratulations. Oh, 100%, what's wrong? Um, and I don't know if this I, is the... I've not besmirched myself. No, no, you haven't, God, no, no. Yeah, and, and I don't know if this is the right thing to say to somebody who's in recovery, but congratulations for being in recovery and congratulations for finding yourself and, and finding your son I don't know if that's appropriate I, but, I, but I do I just, mean that Can I just say one one thing before we go Yeah go ahead of course And it, 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 It's about the nature of Alcoholics Anonymous which is a fellowship which is massive to me and uh, you'll appreciate this because you've got the right sense of humour you, you could sit in an AA meeting and the person in <laughs> will say something like, um, well, when I was drinking, I ended up in prison. I nearly murdered my wife. I nearly threw myself off beachy head. Uh, I became, it will go on, a, a litany of actual horror. And they'll finish. And the next person will say, well, that was a lovely share. <laughs> <laughs> that was really inspirational. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sean, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a cauldron of, of dark humour. 
Thanks for your time today. Uh, the Conservative no, thank woman. You for having me, and uh, hope, hopefully I'm, I, I'd like to come back. No, again. you will be back. I've really enjoyed it. You'll be back anytime you like. I really appreciate it. And regards to Benjamin and to your mum, if mum is listening, like you mentioned, how are you doing, mum? Bloody hell, she is. Your boy has done okay for himself. I haven't told her about this. Oh, have you not? Maybe she won't be listening then. Sean, God bless and Godspeed. It's been lovely. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Thank you, Sean. Sean Walsh, who's written uh, many a fantastic article, but um, his recent one about AI for the Conservative Woman, just look for Sean Walsh on the Conservative Woman, conservativewoman.co.uk. Robots taking over, pull the other one. That's uh, been Monday's Richie Allen Show. Thanks again to Sean. Thanks to Tony Gosling for um, his contribution in Air One. We're back tomorrow again, uh, Tuesday at 5 o'clock UK time. I will be here regardless of what happens. At the dentist tomorrow I will be because they're not going to be taking anything out. <laughs> There's nothing to take out. <laughs> Here's Michael Nesimus. This is Silver Moon closing out the programme. Thanks for all your messages too. Bye now.